Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it was in the year King Uzziah died. That I, Isaiah said, saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled of his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Really, what, what Isaiah here is describing is just the, the awesomeness or the holiness of God's presence as he receives this, this vision of the Lord. Verse 5, so now Isaiah will respond to God's revelation here. Verse 5, then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Isaiah said, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds very simply. He said, here I am. Send me. Uh, You may be seated this morning. For many of us in this room, and I think at some point in our life we could all say this is true, maybe at some point in a season that we've been in, but for many of us, I think we become so familiar with the good things that God has created or that he has given to us, but likely have never been introduced to or even experienced the presence of the uncreated one. Experiencing the presence of the creator is much more powerful and refreshing and life-changing than experiencing or encountering the good things that God has created. Don't get me wrong. I am grateful for God's creation. I'm thankful for the good things that he has given to us to enjoy and to experience and to have. But there's nothing like encountering the life-changing, powerful, holy presence of God. And so I think there are times where we get so caught up in experiencing the good things that the creator has created for us to enjoy that we miss out on encountering the creator himself. Now, Paul actually makes mention of this and describes some who who get caught up in worshiping the created things rather than worshiping the creator. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He describes this group of people. He says, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Isaiah's life was forever was forever altered after encountering the presence of God. Here in Isaiah chapter 6, this is described as as Isaiah's really call into prophetic ministry. Following this encounter with the Lord, Isaiah is going to be tasked with a a rather impossible, difficult, and challenging mission. He's going to be challenged and, and asked to go and speak to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, and to speak the words of God. And, and oftentimes, Isaiah is, is going to be in some very difficult and, and, and very hard situations. And yet, we see that after this encounter with the presence of the Lord, Isaiah's life is forever altered. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, listen, we already read it. This was Isaiah's response to the vision of the Lord. He said, then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed. 
For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet, Isaiah said, I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew over to Isaiah and with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched the lips of Isaiah and he said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. After this encounter with the presence of God, Isaiah's life, not just, not just spiritually in that moment, but moving forward, Isaiah's life would be forever altered because he had been given a mission. He had been given, been given a very specific purpose. Isaiah's experience with Christ in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, it lays a strong foundation for what I believe worship is and what worship should look like for the believer. Now, I'm not saying that we should uh, take burning coals from an altar and start touching each other's lips. That's not what I'm suggesting this morning. But what I'm suggesting to all of us today is that what happens in Isaiah 6, the revelation that Isaiah receives from, from God, and then Isaiah's response to that revelation gives us a beautiful and very accurate picture of what godly worship should look like for the believer. I want to really unpack this for you this morning, beginning just by really defining what worship is. Because, folks, I know when we talk about worship, uh, I could probably go around in this room and ask you to give me a definition of worship. And I would probably get 30 or 40 different definitions of worship. Because I think in the culture that we live in today, uh, sometimes I think we have maybe uh, even a limited understanding of what true godly worship really is. So, so what I want to do is I want to define worship by actually telling you what worship isn't uh, or describing some of the misconceptions that are out there surrounding uh, this subject matter of worship. I'm just going to give these to you quickly. First of all, the first misconception is this. Uh, worship is music. Yes, there is an element of music that entails worship. As Yvonne leads us in song every single Sunday morning or as you listen to, to worship music in your car, yes, there is a worship experience that happens, but, but oftentimes there is this misconception that all worship is is just the songs that we sing for the first 15 minutes of the Sunday morning worship gathering. But worship involves so much more. And if that's all that we think about when it comes to worship, we're really limiting the experience and the encounter that we can have with God. And so really the first misconception is that there's so much more to worship than just music. The second misconception is this, that worship has to be felt. Now, absolutely, uh, emotions are involved. When we come together and when we worship, whether it's through singing or through the word of God, yes, there, there is excitement, there is joy, there is praise, there is emotion, and, and that should be part of, of our worship experience, but, but it's not just a felt experience. And by that, I mean there are times that you probably come into this building on Sunday morning and you just don't feel like worshiping. There may be times that you woke up and, and, and maybe the kids were a little bit more challenging that morning. They didn't want to get going. Uh, maybe it's cold outside. The wind chill is like negative 15 and you just don't really feel like worshiping. But the reality is it doesn't matter whether we feel like it or not. God deserves our worship. And so it's not just a felt experience. Yes, there is emotion involved. Yes, there, there are emotions that will emerge from our experience and our encounter with God. But there are, there are times, folks, that, that maybe we just don't feel like it. But I would suggest to you that if we can press through in those moments when we don't feel like worshiping God, 
that it's in those moments that we encounter him in a very, very powerful way. He will begin to remind us of how great and how awesome he is. Number three, the third misconception is this. Worship is mostly intellectual. Um, really, the other, the, other, the other end of the spectrum. Um, worship, yes, may involve some element of, 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 our, of our mind and, and thinking about who God is, but there's also room, and we know there is room for, for sorrow and for joy. Read the Psalms. We're gonna, we're gonna get to them in a few weeks, and, and the Psalms describe all kinds of emotions. There's praise, there's thanksgiving, there's sorrow, there's discouragement, there's, there's questioning that goes on in the Psalms. And so, so part of worship isn't just um, thinking about God, but there is emotion. There are, there, are, there, are, there are certain elements of worship that involve sorrow and joy. Number four, uh, the fourth misconception is worship is about me. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the ones that maybe we wrestle with, especially maybe, and I know when, when, we, um, when we relegate music, uh, worship to being just music, that's where we begin to see the, the, the worship being about me kind of come into play because we start thinking, well, you know what, I just didn't really get into worship today because I don't really like that song or, or that song was, you know, didn't really touch me today and, and I didn't really experience much. And the reality is worship, um, yes, we all have, I have favorite songs, I have a favorite song, style of music. I'm certain all of you in this room have songs that you like or music that you like, but worship in general is not about me. It's about him. It's about giving glory and honor to the resurrected king, the one true God. And that's why even as we sang this morning, we were declaring great are you, Lord. Not great are we, glad tidings, not great am I, Kyle. It was great are you, Lord. Worship is not just about me, it's about him. Number five, the fifth mis- myth- misconception is that worship happens only at church. <laughs> I am grateful that, that I am not worshiping God just in the two hours that I'm here on Sunday morning. Yes, I pray and I hope that every one of you, when you step into this building, into this worship space, I pray and hope that you encounter God's presence. But, but worship is not limited to a time or a space. You can worship Christ in your car. You can worship Christ at home. You can worship Christ at your workplace or while you're driving from one location to the next. We have access to God always and at every moment and every time. And so worship is not relegated to a time, a location, or space. But worship is about entering into the presence of God no matter where we are at. Worship doesn't just happen. It happens, I hope, and pray at church. But it doesn't just happen here. Number six, worship is only for adults. And, and I appreciate Jen making mention of this, and, and I, I want to reiterate once again, wrong. It's not just for adults. I pray and hope that our kids, as they're in here singing with us, or, or when you're at home and you're listening to worship music, or as you're praying with your kids, I, I hope and pray that my children are encountering God's presence just as much as I am. I want my kids to, to experience him, to experience his goodness, his faithfulness, and his love. Worship is not just for adults. It's for all of us. We, we have the opportunity to encounter and experience his presence. And number seven, worship is personal. Yes, uh, that's a misconception because, yes, it is personal. There, there are moments where maybe you step aside and you enter into your, 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 your secret place where you will encounter God's presence. We see in Scripture, Jesus in the Gospels, uh, a lot of times, what does he do? He will get away from the crowd to go and be with the Father, just him and the Father. But there are also moments, there are communal moments, there are moments where the body of Christ gathers together on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays or whenever it may be so we can worship Christ. And so worship is not just 
just personal. It's not just about you and him, but it's also about the body of Christ or us collectively coming together. And, and, there, and, and folks, there is power. I think there's great power when, when all of us as individuals come together in, in, in the public worship gathering to give him praise. And I believe, doesn't mean he doesn't show up any other time, but I believe that as we all gather together, there's something unique, something special about the gathering of God's people when it comes to worship. So that's uh, what worship really isn't. Let me kind of define Christ-centered worship this morning. Richard Foster says this. I think this describes it well. This is easy to remember, and this goes along with our text in Isaiah chapter 6. Worship is the human response to the divine initiative. I want you to hear that again. Worship is the human, or yes, is the human response to the divine initiative. Let me unpack this for you. God, God reveals himself to you, to me, to us, to his creation. He reveals himself to us and then we respond to that revelation. It's, it's God's revelation and the human response. It's not about me. It's not about my preferences. It's not about what I like. It's about God's revelation of himself and my and your obedient response to him. I want to tell you a story. I don't know if some of you are familiar with Matt Redman. Uh, Matt Redman is a, is a Christian um, singer, uh, worship leader, um, and, and, and really back probably in the 1990s when um, he began to, uh, maybe even before that, but there's a particular song that he wrote called The Heart of Worship. I wanna tell you the story just real quickly behind that song because it captures beautifully that worship is not about my preferences, it's my preferences, it's not about me, but it's about him. In the late 1990s, Matt Redman's home church in Watford was going through a spiritually tough time. The worship band, uh, band's musical creativity was on a high making new and influential songs for the local church with an impact on church worship, worship nationwide as well as worldwide. Yet, recalled Redman talking to um, David Schrader, he said there was a dynamic that was missing. So the pastor did a pretty brave thing. Listen to what the pastor did. The pastor was Mike Pilavachi, co-founder of the 30,000 uh, attendance annual soul survivor in its 20s and 30s sub-brand Momentum. And the pastor asked his congregation what they were bringing to God in worship or if, or if they were just there as consumers soaking up the music. His point was that the band in the church had lost their way in worship, and the only solution was to strip every diversion and distraction, and that included the entire sound system in the worship band. So what did the pastor do where Matt Redman was a worship pastor? They stripped everything. They got rid of the sound system. They got rid of the stage. They got rid of the instruments, and they came together uh, as the people of God without, without instruments, without a sound system, with just their voices willing to offer God praise. Initially, Matt remembers unplugging just led to an embarrassing silence. I don't know if there's any of you in this room. I hate awkward silence. I hate when there's, you know, they usually say you're supposed to allow like seven seconds for somebody to say something before you jump in. Folks, for me, it's like two seconds. So if you don't speak up, I'm jumping in. I don't like silence at all. But Matt read me, said, I remember when we unplugged, when we stripped everything away, said, I remember the embarrassing silence. But eventually, the congregation rediscovered their own voices singing unaccompanied offering up heartfelt prayers and encountering God in a fresh way. And by the time they felt sufficiently ready to reintroduce the musicians and sound system, the church had found a new perspective on worship, that it's all about Jesus and that it demands a response from the heart. And so the song, The Heart of Worship, actually came out of that experience. Listen to some of the, the lyrics that describe what occurred. When the music fades and all is stripped away, I simply come. 
longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your hearts. I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Um, I remember even in youth groups singing that song. And, and once, you, once you begin to understand the story behind that message, a beautiful, powerful, I'm not suggesting that we need to strip everything away. I'm not saying we need to you know, get rid of Yvonne and the guitar and the sound system. But, but what we need to be reminded of is that worship is not about us. When we come together, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And we need to come and we need to offer him our hearts and our obedience. Isaiah's vision of the Lord in this chapter, chapter 6, I believe captures beautifully the hearts of worship. We see God's revelation. and We also see the human response when Isaiah encounters the presence of God. I want to talk just briefly about God's revelation and then reveal to you the human response. And I'll move through this quickly this morning. Isaiah 6, let me read it again. Here is God's revelation. Let's go back to the the picture that Isaiah gives. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was one of the kings of Judah. And it was in the year that he died that I saw the Lord, Isaiah said, he was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Verse three says, they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. What, what, I, what Isaiah is capturing here is he's just giving us a picture of God's revelation, the presence of God in a very powerful vision that Isaiah receives. The train of his robe is, is filling the temple. There's smoke and, and the foundations were, were being shaken to the ground. And so we get a picture of the awesomeness, the, the revelation of God's presence in this vision. God has and does reveal himself in so many ways. And I, I think, folks, I think we, I, I'm gonna give you a few, a few of these very quickly. But, but God, and I hope we know this, God is still revealing himself to his creation, to us today. Um, As we read scripture, as we pray, um, as we worship, God reveals himself to you and to me. And and so I want to just give you a few ways that he still is revealing himself to us that will then demand a response. Number one, he reveals himself through his creation and through his creation he reveals his character. Look at Romans chapter one, verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. I think if any of us have, have ever been to, whether it's to the ocean or we've been outside, we, we've looked at the, the, the rising of the sun or the, or the sun setting, or maybe you're more of a go outdoors and, and in the nature and you just enjoy God's creation. The reality is when we go and we experience his creation, God is revealed himself to us. Uh, as we look at his creation, we get a picture of the awesomeness of our creator, his holiness, his goodness, and his faithfulness. Um, uh, Psalm uh, chapter uh, 19, uh, the psalmist says this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the whole earth and their words to all the world. He reveals his character to us through his creation. He also reveals through the prophets, his son in his word, and he continues to speak to us today. Hebrews chapter one, I think, captures it beautifully. Long ago, Hebrews one, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through how the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. And we know as you open up scripture, as you read Isaiah or Jeremiah, as you read the prophets, God was speaking to the people of God, but now he speaks to us through his son. 
And, and we know that his son, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word, the son became flesh and dwelled among us, which means God is still speaking to us how through his word. And so we have to be people of his word. If we're not, if we're not reading this, and we've already, we've already talked about the importance of, of being people of the word, but if we're not reading this and digesting this, how are we going to know who God is? God reveals himself daily through his word. His word is alive, it is powerful. So as we give ourselves to this, he reveals his character to us. Deuteronomy 8 says, Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God reveals himself, folks, to us through his word. That's why we must be people of the word. That's why our mission statement is to develop biblically sound believers who reflect the Christ, who reflect Christ's character. When we know his word, he is revealing himself and his character to us. He also reveals himself through his ministry and his atoning work. And he does that by revealing his faithful love to us. First uh, John chapter four, verse nine and 10, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real, real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He reveals his faithful love to us by the giving of his son and by his atoning work on the cross. He also reveals through the giving of the Holy Spirit, he reveals that his desire is to spend eternity with us. And his plan is to reach a lost world for Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 14. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So he reveals to us um, his, his faithful plan and his desire to spend eternity. He's given you and me when we accept Christ as our Savior. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit, as a guarantee that one day you and I will spend eternity with him, And so he reveals his plan and his desire for you and me to spend eternity with him as he gives us the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 1, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. And so, so what, is, what is worship? Worship is God revealing himself to us, whether it's through creation, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through his atoning work. But then the second half of worship is not just God's revelation, but it's also our response to his revelation. God reveals himself and humanity responds. That's what worship is. It's not just music. It's not just a feeling. It's not just some intellectual thinking that's going on. Worship is God revealing himself and humans responding in obedience. So what is the human response? We see it with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, verse five. Then Isaiah said, it's all over, I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man, I have filthy lips, I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people who will go for us? And then this is Isaiah's response. God revealed himself, God said, who's gonna go? Isaiah said, send me, I'll go. That's my response. I, I will worship you and honor you. I will go, Isaiah said, wherever you tell me to go. God revealed his powerful presence and holiness to Isaiah in a very unique vision. And Isaiah responded with a willingness to offer himself as a vessel for God in his mission. He said, here I am, send me. If part of worship, I want you to see, if part of worship is our response to God's revelation, then what is a worthy response? And let me just give these to you and then we'll actually bring this to a close this morning. What, what is a worthy response to God's revelation? 
How should we as human beings respond to the holiness of God, to his faithfulness, to his incredible love that he expressed to you and me at the, at the cross of Jesus Christ? What is a worthy, worshipful response? What does he, the creator of the universe, deserve? Number one, we must have an urgent desire to be in God's presence. We must have an urgent desire to be in his presence. We see this, um, may, you might know the story. It's gonna be up here. I'm not gonna read the whole text. Luke chapter 10, verse, verses 38 through 42. Mary and Martha, I think we're familiar with them in the New Testament. Uh, Mary, um, in this particular story, um, Jesus was actually invited into the home of Martha. And uh, if you know the story, you have Mary and Martha who um, had kind of, they were kind of opposites. Uh, Martha, uh, once she invited Jesus into the house, uh, she was making sure that she was hospitable, preparing, preparing the meal. Um, it even says in verse 40, Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. She was so busy trying to make sure that Jesus was comfortable in her home that she was missing out on the presence of God in her midst. Because you get this picture, Martha's busy, she's distracted, but Mary, Mary desired the greater things because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus was in their midst and Mary was sitting at the feet. She, she had an urgent desire to be in God's presence. Not that the meal wasn't important. I think as human beings, the meal was important. I think if we come into a home and we're expecting dinner, um, we're, we're going to expect a, a nice dinner that we can consume and eat. That's, that's part of who we are. But in the moment, Jesus was in their midst. The son of God was present. And Mary, she desired the greater things. She desired to sit at his feet, to listen to his teaching, to spend time in his presence while Martha was distracted preparing the dinner. There should be an urgency like Mary to just be still in the presence of God. Richard Foster said this service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. Service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. Service isn't wrong. We're going to talk about service next week. Um, and, and we should be people who serve, and that should be an outflow of our relationship with God. But when service becomes really our worship or as a substitute for worship, that's when we get into idolatry. Personally, I know for me, uh, there's just something exciting about gathering together corporately. The body, I, I love, um, I, I do, I love to drive up here on Sunday mornings. I love getting ready to, to fellowship with all of you, worship together. Um, you know, I, I have a tendency to probably be a little bit more of an introvert. Maybe you don't know that. That's true. Yes. I think ministry has pushed me a little bit uh, out of that, but I do. I enjoy, I enjoy the corporate worship gathering. There's something that, that I get excited about as we prepare to come together, not just to fellowship with you. I love all of you, but I enjoy coming together so we can encounter the presence of God together. I know my kids, and, and maybe you've experienced, you know, that build up to something exciting. Maybe you, maybe you've talked about or, or planned a special trip for your family, your kids. I know uh, we did that just uh, last year. Uh, we were planning a trip to Holiday World. We don't tell our kids anything when it comes to that. Number one, if something happens and we can't go, we don't want to disappoint them, so we just don't tell them. But at the same time, there's something exciting. We say, hey, we've got something you know, planned for you, an exciting trip coming up. Um, you know, Just kind of throwing some, some teasers out there. There's that buildup. Um, that, that begins to unfold. I think I saw on Facebook, you guys just got a, a new dog recently, and I think there was a buildup to that as well with your kids. So there, there's that excitement that builds, and, and that's how it is. I think there should be an urgent desire for us to be in the presence, an excitement that's, that's really boiling inside of us to come together, to worship Christ together. 
And so part of, part of, uh, of worship is having this urgent desire to be in his presence. That is a worthy response. Number two, uh, our second worthy response is we must have hearts that are prepared to worship our king. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 24, who may climb the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will never receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God. Of Jacob. Now, let, let me just kind of explain that. What, what the psalmist is saying that as believers, uh, we aren't just to live as believers on Sunday morning, but we should be living our lives as heirs of the kingdom of God Monday through Saturday. Uh, in our workplace, in our home, in the stores, at school, wherever we go, we should live as children of God. We should live as citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth. We should live as an heir of God's kingdom during the week. Why? So that when we come together on Sunday morning, we will be prepared to encounter Christ in the public worship gathering. And so one of the things that we do during the week as we worship in our secret place, as we listen to worship music, as we read scripture, as we pray, what we're doing is we're preparing our hearts so that when we come together on Sunday morning to worship the risen king, when we come together, we can encounter his presence and we can hear his voice. If we don't spend time preparing during the week, um, I mean, it's the same in, I could say about sports or anything else. If we don't, if we don't spend time uh, in preparation um, Monday through through Saturday, when it comes to preparing our hearts uh, for for a or, or our, I guess when it comes to sports, um, I, I think we all know that practice is important, right? Um, we, we need to make sure that when we're practicing, we don't just show up. I can't show up at a baseball game. Professional athletes don't just show up um, on a Sunday, a Monday, whenever it is, and play a game without practicing during the week. Practice is necessary. Preparing is necessary so that we can do what we're called to do. The same is true spiritually. We need to prepare our hearts spiritually so that we are prepared to re- worship the risen king. Um, we need to find ways to reorient our focus toward Christ as we prepare to enter the public worship gathering. We do this every single week. We, we have a call to worship. The call to worship is not just something we do so we can have a, a, a random reading of scripture at the beginning. We do it so our hearts can uh, have, be reoriented or can be focused to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The purpose of that call to worship is to be reminded that, guess what? God has already called us to worship him, and now we are here to respond to that call. We need to prepare. Maybe one of the things we can do is prepare the night before. That might be, you know, maybe it's just reading a little bit more scripture before you go to bed or reading some of the Psalms, preparing our heart to encounter the King of kings on Sunday morning, or maybe it's trying to remove distractions. Um, I, I know sometimes it's hard to do, but removing distractions will allow us to focus on him. Number three, we must seek, what is a worthy response? We must seek to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. Paul says in Romans 12, you know it, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of what he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. And he says, this is, this is truly the way to worship him, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. What, is, what does that look like? Just very simply, it means we need to be open to God's plan and purpose for our life. We need to be open to his mission. And Isaiah was. He, he received a vision. He said, who are we gonna send to go and proclaim this message? And Isaiah raised his hand. You know what? Send me. I'm open. I'm gonna give my life as a living sacrifice. Whatever you want me to do, God, I'm gonna do as worship unto you. Here I am, send me. What else does it look like? It, it looks like us submitting to and obeying his lordship and his leadership and his call. 
Guess what, folks? I'm certain Isaiah did not necessarily feel like doing what God called him to. And remember, I said worship is not always about feeling like doing it. There, there were moments that Isaiah was saying, God, you know, can I not preach this message? <laughs> can I not talk about that? There, there's probably weeks that I feel that way. Can I not talk about this subject? You know, but, but, but if God's called us, we're to be obedient. We're to submit, submit to his lordship. It, if you read, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but if you look in Isaiah chapter 6, once Isaiah says, here I am, send me, verses 9 through 13, the rest of the chapter, you get a picture of what Isaiah is going to have to do, and his message is not going to be a simple message to proclaim. Uh, I mean, in some places, Isaiah is going to have to go and proclaim a message of judgment to the people of God. And, and nobody wants to, we, we always talk about uh, the one that, that has to give the bad news. Well, Isaiah was the one that had to give the bad news. And there's some of us in this room that are like, can someone else do that? I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But, but there were times that Isaiah did not feel like it, but he was submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ because he was seeking to offer his life as a living sacrifice. Uh, we also know that, that, that part of that is not, it, it means that it's not just about me, it's about him. And, and Isaiah experiences that. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Guys, there will be times where, where submitting to his lordship will be uncomfortable. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abram is called to do what? To leave his land, his country, everything that he's familiar with and go to a place that God was gonna show him. Sometimes submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ and offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God as an act of worship, Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's going to hurt just a little bit. But if it's what God's called us to, and if we are to respond in a worthy manner, then that's how we should respond. Sometimes it will be costly. Uh, Genesis 22, Abraham. What, I talked about this last week, I believe, or two weeks ago. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, the son that you had been praying for, the son that you and, and Sarah had been longing for, the son that I promised you, the one whom you love. And, and, God, and, and, and Abraham, I want you to take that son. I want you to go to the top of the mountain. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Sometimes, sometimes worship will be costly. It will cost us something. Sometimes it will be hard. Jonah, uh, well, uh, I'll talk about Jonah later in the year. I'm preaching a message uh, on, on Jonah about the call, but, but it was hard. What did Jonah do? Instead of offering his body as a living sacrifice initially, he did just the opposite. Jonah ran. <laughs> Jonah ran from the call of God. He knew it was going to be hard. Instead of saying, here I am, send me, he said, no way, not me, and he ran and he got out of there. Um, now, he got swallowed up by a great fish and, and got spit out, and that's a whole nother story, a whole nother sermon. It's great. Uh, read the end of Jonah chapter two, I mean, Jonah gets uh, vomited onto to dry ground after spending three days in the belly of a fish. Um, I'm certain he stunk, probably needed a shower and a deodorant. Uh, but, but anyways, that has nothing to do other than the fact that sometimes worship is hard. Sometimes offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is challenging, but it's what God deserves and what God calls for. Worthy worship is costly, but it's worth it. We must declare the glory of God. What's a worthy response? We must declare his glory. Sometimes that we do it in song. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Sometimes we do it in our living. First Peter 2, verse 9, you are not like that for you are a chosen people, royal priest, holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Sometimes we do it through the word. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, we're to offer continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. Sometimes we even declare his glory in moments of hardship. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in prison for doing what? For preaching the gospel. They're in prison, but what do they do? They don't complain. They don't bicker. They don't argue. They don't try to find a way out. What are they doing at midnight? They're singing and declaring praises to God. 
And sometimes we must do that even in moments of hardship. Finally, we must express thanksgiving and gratitude. Psalm 100, Andrew read it in our call to worship. We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Worthy worship. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's costly. Worthy worship is worth it. God is certainly worthy of our worship. Would you stand with me this morning? Don't tune me out just yet. I want to end with two very powerful quotes from one of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer, regarding worship. And I just, oh, that's correct up there, okay. I just realized I had an error in my notes, but it's right up here. Good job, good work. Um, <laughs> first of all, listen, listen to this, true worship. So what is worship? A.W. Tozer says, true worship is to be so personally and hopelessly in love with God, that the idea of a transfer of affection never even remotely exists. True worship is to be so in love with God that the, even the idea of, of transferring our affection of love to someone or something other than God would never even remotely Exists. We're so in love with him that the idea of loving someone or something else more than God, that doesn't even exist. He says that's what true worship is. And then he goes on to say, and this one's hard. This one hurts a little bit. I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Revelation 4, listen, Revelation 4. We get a picture in Revelation of what heavenly worship will one day look like. And I've said this before, folks, what we do on Sunday mornings is just a small foretaste of what heavenly worship will look like when people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will gather around the throne, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we will declare in song and worship in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what we do here on Sunday mornings is just a, a small glimpse of what heaven, an imperfect glimpse of what perfect heavenly worship will one day look like. And so Revelation 4, verse 10 and 11, the 24 elders fall down. John, John is giving us a picture. He, he's, he's been invited to, to kind of see what's going on behind what's really going on. And so we see in Revelation 4, it says, For the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Worship that is true, worship that is pure, worship that is lovely is worship that God deserves. God is certainly worthy of our worship. What I want to do this morning, very simply, and we're just going to close, we're going to actually close out with this song. I want, just, I want you to close your eyes and bring the lights down. Um, if you know this song, uh, sing with us. Uh, the lyrics will be up on the screen, but I just want to encourage you just to take a minute this morning. Worship again. It's not just music. It's not just about a feeling, but I would just want you to take a minute this morning. And as we sing this song, Revelation song I want you just to think about ways that God has revealed himself to you and then I want you as we worship together as we sing together this morning 
begin to pray about and consider what is a worthy response to his revelation. Let's worship together, eyes closed.